As you're being seated, open your Bible to the book of John, chapter 15. We're spending several weeks just abiding in about 11 or 12 verses here, just absorbing the rich content that Jesus spoke just before he departed. There was something he wanted to tell them, and it all had to do with an intimate, personal relationship that he invites every disciple into. It's an abiding relationship in which um, we are infused with his life, we're enveloped with his word, we're informed by his word, we're enveloped by his love, and uh, we're ignited with this unexplainable love, and it all has to do with this one word, abide. And we've given you some definitions for that. Abide means that we are to remain. It means don't go anywhere. Don't be tempted to wander off. Don't listen to other voices telling you it's not worth it. Jesus wanted his disciples to stay put, and he wants you to do the same. Not only does it mean remain, it means to unite with Christ. We looked at the wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. Christ in me and me in Christ is this abiding relationship. And then it means to dwell. It means that uh, our relationship with Jesus is not some ceremonial, formal practice of religion. It means that we settle in, we make our home in, we nest in this relationship with Jesus. So let's read once again these rich words beginning in John 15 verse 1. This is what he says. I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, verse 4, abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the what? You're a what? You're a stick. Lest you think too highly of yourself, you're just a stick. You're a straw. The life flows from the vine through the stick, producing fruit on the other side. All the fruit is meant to give glory to the vine, not the stick. Jesus says, I am the vine. That's where the life is. You're a stick. You are the branches. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Everybody hold up the universal symbol of how much you can do apart from Christ. That's you apart from Christ. There's a lot of things that you can do. It's just that none of them are going to count for anything significant or eternal apart from Christ. Abide in me. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And br the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. That's a sad, sad reality. It's a warning if you do not abide. You will suffer the judgment that's described as being burned. It's, it's, it's not, you don't want to be that. You want to abide. So he says in verse 7, If you do abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's the verse, the verse that we concentrated on last week. We talked about abiding in the words of Jesus. Getting Jesus' words into me and getting Jesus' words in my prayers. So that when I ask, the words that I'm asking 
are actually very reflective of the words that Jesus wants to hear. Ask whatever you want, it'll be done for you if you abide in me. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Not a little fruit, a lot of fruit. And a lot of fruit comes from a lot of pruning. He says, uh, you will bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, the verse that we're going to concentrate on today is verse 9. It says this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. That's the outline. That's where we're going. We're going to learn about how the Father loves the Son and how the Son loves us and how we are to abide in His love. Now, I got good news for you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. This is not a message about how you're supposed to love God. This is a message about how God loves you. I don't want you to do something. I want you to feel something. Now, I was kind of brought up in a church where, you know, feelings were bad. If you started feeling something, you're probably shallow. Listen, the love of God is deep and rich, and it is definitely something that is to be felt, to be experienced and abided in. Here's who I have in mind as I think about this message. I have in mind some people in this room that find it very hard to believe that God loves you. Maybe it's just the whole concept of a loving God you have trouble with. Maybe it's because of the pain of your life and what you've experienced and you see natural disasters and you see suffering and heartache and disease in the world and you think, well, if God loves us, He would fix it. He would do something about it. Maybe that's the whole concept you're having trouble with. I'm having some, I, I have in mind some other people here that um, you have been very unloved. Maybe you were neglected by family. Maybe you were invisible to someone that you wanted attention and acceptance and approval from. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe there's some heartache in your life and people have been very unloving to you. And it's possible there are some people here that struggle feeling at all lovable, even by God. That's who I have in mind. And Jesus says to us, that's why you need to learn to abide in my love. I also have in mind some very religious types in this room. And uh, these are not new words to you because you're all about the love of God. You love talking about the love of God. But the problem is, is you think God's love is something that can be earned, I mean, you're so religious, you're at church all the time. Talk about hundred, uh, reading the Bible in 100 days. Who needs 100 days? You're doing it in 47 days because you really want to show God how much you love Him. And listen, your mistake is to understand the love of God cannot be earned. So let's talk about the amazing love of God. We're going to ask some questions here. First of all, what is the love of God. Jesus says, abide in my love. So we need a definition. Now, I read a lot of books, read a lot of definitions this week looking for a definition of God's love, and I just kind of grabbed a bunch, smashed them together, and this is the best that I could come up, up with. What is the love of God? It is God's self-giving affection that leads Him to act for our good 
even at great cost to himself. Now, that is very different than a Hollywood definition of love. If your idea of love has been formed by Hallmark movies, you don't understand the love of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, you don't get the definition of love from watching Hallmark Channel. Just, just don't. That's, it's, it's, I mean, some of you, it's the fall weather's coming, and I'm like, you're looking forward to the Hallmark thing. Listen, that will jack you up if you're looking to Hallmark as a definition for love. Uh, this is much different than a worldly love. It's even different than a, a, a love relationship between a husband and a wife, between a parent and a child. This is the biblical definition of love, God's self-giving affection. I love the word affection because it takes it out of this ethereal, academic, doctrinal understanding of some distant God and makes it very personal. God has a, an affection for those who bear his image, those whom he's created. And it's a self-giving love that leads him to act. It's not just something God feels for you. It's actually something God does toward you, that he directs toward you. And it leads him to act for our good. It changes our relationship from God against me to God for me. And it is at great cost to himself. Did you know that God has to pay a price to love sinners like you and me? Um, you know, sometimes we sing the song around here, Reckless Love. You know that song? I love that song. I love that song. We're going to sing it here before we're done. But uh, that song, there's a little bit of controversy about that song among worship leaders, and they debate whether or not that's really an accurate word that you'd want to use for the definition of, of God's love. To, is God's love really reckless? Listen, in the sense that God pays a great price to love me, it is reckless. I mean, it would be reckless for a child to just kind of wander into a street and face oncoming traffic, right? That would be reckless. Well, this is what Jesus did. Jesus stepped in front of a bus of God's wrath and absorbed the judgment so that God's love could be directed toward me. And in that sense, God's love was incredibly reckless. And so understand, the love that God has for us comes at great cost to himself. Let's define it a little further and look at some scriptures. Um, understand that God's love is eternal, or God's love is central to his nature. It's not just something God does or expresses, it's who he is. First John even says, God is love. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, this is a passage, if you're reading through the 100 days, you're going to see this verse quoted over 20 times in your Bible. And this, this statement about God's love was given in response to a prayer that was prayed by Moses. Moses prayed, Lord, show me your glory. And in response to that prayer, the Lord spoke and said this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. Notice how 
steadfast, unmovable, unshakable, and constant God's love is toward you. Not only that, God's love is eternal in quality and in quantity. Notice this, it says, God's love is eternal in quantity and quantity. Lamentations chapter three. Now you're gonna get to Lamentations at some point. Um, That's gonna be a bad day for you. Um, Because Lamentations is the most depressing book in the Bible. And right in the center of the most depressing book in the Bible is, is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. It says this, Lamentations three, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That was written at a time that the nation of Israel was coming to an end. The enemies had surrounded and invaded and it looked like this was the end of the people of God. And the prophet Jeremiah wrote and said, it's maybe the end of the political kingdom. This is not the end of God's mercies toward us. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then God's love is most clearly seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is John 15, 13. If you still got your Bible open, it's right there. It's just four verses down. It's verse 13, right there in John 15. He says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, if you still got your Bible open, what's the next thing he said? You are my friends. And then the next thing he did was he did the very thing to show his love. He laid his life down on the cross to absorb God's wrath so that we could absorb God's love. So let's ask this, who does God love? Let's look at three different objects of God's love. First of all, God loves the world. And again, this is John. By the way, you know John, he wrote five books in the Bible. We've got the Gospel of John, John 15, we're right there. And then he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then the book of Revelation. Five books in the Bible. And John had more to say about the love of God than any other biblical author. As a matter of fact, do you know how John referred to himself when he would write about himself? He didn't, he didn't put his name down when he wrote about himself. Do you know what he said? He would call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, as opposed to all the disciples Jesus tolerated. Um, Like Peter. Like I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. John was consumed with the love that Jesus had for him. And he had a lot to say about it. And that's why he wrote the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Does God love the world? It's a question. It's kind of a theological question. Does God love everybody? John very clearly says God loved the world. God loves everybody. God loves everybody in the world. God loves everything and everybody he's ever created because it's stamped with his image and God loves things that are stamped with his image. But please understand, God doesn't love everybody the same way. But God loves everybody. 
There's a verse in the book of Matthew that says this. It talks about God's love. It's actually a command to us. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Does God love the just? In other words, those who have been justified, made right with him? Yes, it's clearly in this verse. And he loves the unjust, those who have yet to be justified. He sends a sunrise and a sunset for both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the evil and the good. And so there's a sense in which we all enjoy, whether you are evil or good, whether you're saved or lost, whether you're a child of God or a hater of God, you all, we all get to, to absorb the goodness and the love of God. As a matter of fact, this tells us God loves his enemies. He's telling us to love our enemies so that we may be like the sons of God. So the way we love is a reflection of the way that God loves. But understand, God doesn't love everybody the same way. There, there's two wrong conclusions that often people come to when they're discussing the love of God. Here's the first wrong conclusion. Because God does not save everyone, God must not love everyone. Because if he loved everyone, he would save everyone. Therefore, their conclusion is, God must not love everyone. That is not biblically accurate. Here's the flip side. Here's the other wrong conclusion people come to when discussing God's love. Because God does love everyone, He must save everyone. That's not biblically accurate either. Here's the truth. God's love does not conflict with God's justice. As a matter of fact, it's God's justice that makes God's love toward us so amazing. If it wasn't for God's justice, we would have no appreciation for God's love. We were the enemies that God loved and overcame our resistance and overcame our lack of love so that he could draw us to himself. Let me put it this way. Um, I love my neighbors. You love your neighbors? Raise your hand if you love your neighbors. Raise your hand if you're a Christian because you're supposed to love your neighbors, right? So you love your neighbors? Um, but I also love my wife. I love my wife differently than I love my neighbors. I have some neighbors I would like to exchange for better neighbors. Any, anybody else? Yeah, right? But you, you love them. You, you, you don't want harm on them. You want them to succeed, right? Um, and, and you want to, to live in harmony. But I love my wife in such a way that I've committed my life to. I love my wife more than I love my neighbors. If I have to choose, I'm going with my wife. Because I've entered into a covenant, lifelong love relationship with her where we share everything. We share a bank account. We share all that I have is hers, and I've given all that I have to her, and she's given her heart back to me. That's a different kind of love. And so, yes, God loves the world, but he loves his children with a special kind of love. The only way you can understand that is by understanding this next concept. Who does God love? He loves the world. 
All right, just strap your seatbelt on because I'm going to ask you to go into a deep dive for me, okay? We're going to go into a deep theological dive here for a few minutes. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay, we're going deep. Here we go. God loves himself. <gasps> well, how dare he? How many of you have noticed your children love themselves? How many of you are trying to correct that behavior? You, you can't. That's sin to love yourself, right? So, and the reason we know that is because we know the gaps and the flaws and the imperfections and the weaknesses. Somebody that loves themselves, they tend to be blind toward those things, don't they? And so we're like, quit loving yourself. That, that's, just, that's just rude, it's wrong, it's prideful, right? But is it isn't it impossible for God to have an imperfection? And so do you know what God loves most? God loves His perfections. He loves His glories. He loves His beauty. And God the Father loves God the Son. Notice this, John chapter 17, verse 23. Jesus is praying to His Father. He says, I in them, guess who the them is? That's us. That's the doctrine of the union, the abiding in Christ. I in them, you, Father, in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. I just want you to look at these three words. You loved me. God the Father loved God the Son. Then verse 24, he keeps going. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me because I am, uh, be, be where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father loved God the Son. And then it says this in verse 26. He says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me. Notice, you, God the Father, have loved me, God the Son, may be in them and I in them. So what do we learn here? Now, again, I want you to take a deep breath. We're going to go deep here for a moment. Jesus is talking about an eternal, intra-Trinitarian love. Do not try to write that down. Just feel impressed that you absorb that truth. An eternal, intra-Trinitarian love. Do you understand that the Bible teaches us about God as a trinity. How do you define that? It's impossible. The best we can do is summarizing it in these three statements. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. All three of those statements are true. You may say, that sounds a little contradictory. That's because you're trying to understand something with your finite brain that is infinite about God. And all we're saying is, 
God the Father loved God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father has been in an eternal covenant love relationship with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit for all of eternity past. I had somebody after the first service ask me this question. Trent, I'm having my trouble wrapping my head around that. When did God the Father create God the Son? No, 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 you don't understand. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have eternally existed in a love relationship before the foundation of the world in all eternity past. Think about this. We've already established that God is love. But without an object, love cannot be expressed. So who did, the, who did God love before the foundation of the world? God loved Himself. God the Father loved God the Son, who loved God the Holy Spirit, who loved God the Father. And there was this eternal love relationship. God expressed His love before He ever created you. And God did not create you because He was lonely. And God didn't create you because He needed someone to love. He already had that. And God didn't create you because He needed someone to love Him back. God loved Himself first. Now, this is what is amazing. You want to know how much God loves you? He created you because He wanted you to enjoy and love what He already loved. What does God love most? What does God the Father love most? God the Son. And He wants you to love what He loves most. God the Son. Here's the next thing we want to see. Who does God love? He loves the world. He loves Himself. And God loves His own. John 13, 1. Again, John says this. When Jesus knew that His hour had come, so He's about to die. He's about to go to the cross. He, uh, when, uh, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own. Do you see it here? He loved his own. He's talking about the disciples there, those that he was in union with, those who were abiding in him. Having loved his own who were in the world. You see, God loved the world. We've already, John already told us that. But there's somebody in the world that he loves with a different kind of love, and that's his own. God loves the world, and God loves his own in the world. He loved them to the end end. That means he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the max that you can love a thing or a person. And then this, again, John, 1 John now, he says this in, verse, in chapter 3, see, he, there's, God want, John wants you to see something about God's love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. God loves His creation, but God loves His children with a special 
saving, redeeming love. And the question is, how do you know you're in it? How do you know that you're loved by God? Understand, Jesus didn't come into the world just because He loved you. Jesus came into the world because He loved His Father. In obedience to His Father, He came into the world to love the Father and give us access to love what the Father loves, namely the Son. Are you tracking with me? This is so deep. I hope you're tracking with me here. This is amazing. What Jesus is saying here, when He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Do you know what He's saying? The way that the Father has loved the Son is the way that the Son loves you. It's a cascading kind of love. God the Father is inviting us to enjoy the love relationship He has with His Son. So like a cascading waterfall, the Father loves the Son, and in turn, the Son loves us because we are His beloved. Let, let, me, let me illustrate it this way, okay? Have you ever been to a beautiful waterfall that, that kind of had different tiers to it? Like there was a waterfall and it kind of created a pool and then it, it fell again and it created another pool and it fell again and created another pool. Kind of like this picture here. Isn't that a beautiful picture here? So that's the picture of how the Father loves the world. If you think of just the world in general, here's a bunch of evil, dirty, rotten sinners down here in the pool. God loves them, but the only access they have to God's love is from the next pool up. This is us. This is His children. This is the church who are loved by the Son who is loved by the Father. So the Father's love cascades in a waterfall relationship into the Son. The Son loves the children of God, the church, who are in turn supposed to love the world. That was a two-dimensional illustration. Let me give you a three-dimensional illustration. This is one of God's best creations. This is called a chocolate fountain. Do you notice the cascading chocolate representing the cascading love of God? From the top of the fountain, we have the love of God that spreads down into the next layer. That is His Son. God the Father loves the Son, who in turn loves His children, the church, who are in turn supposed to love the world. This is how to abide in the love of God. All you do is you got to get in the flow. You got to get in the waterfall. Until you abide in the love, you're not going to experience the kind of love that God wants you to experience. Yes, I'm going to eat it. I know you're wondering what I was going to do with that. Now, by the way, that's one. Let me just time out here. If you've never understood baptism, <laughs> let me explain it to you, okay? For those of us who have come into a saving love relationship with Jesus, what baptism does is represents the immersion into the love of Christ. And so when we baptize you, we we'll just stick you in there, get you all gooey and stuff. And then that represents the kind of love that we have as God's children. Again, somebody said, if you fill that baptistry with chocolate, I'll get baptized. <laughs> we'll think about that. If that's what it would take to get some of you to come forward and say, I need to be baptized, you let me know. I'm serious. We're going to be 
I'm baptizing some people next month, and we need you to come. If you have identified with Christ, you've turned from your sin, and you are in the love of Christ, that is represented visibly through water baptism, okay? So, the cascading love of Christ is something that we are immersed in, and we need to understand how to abide, just remain, nest, settle in, saturate yourself in the love of Christ. That's what he commands, abide in my love. That means we have to receive it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says this, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Not everybody's come to know this, and not everybody can believe what I'm telling you right now, but we have, and we continue to come to know, and we continue to believe that we are loved by God. God is love. Whoever abides in love, stay under the waterfall. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Again, the doctrine of union with Christ. God in me, me in God, the abiding relationship of a disciple with Jesus. Now listen, that is something that is to be received. The love of God is not something to be studied. The love of God is something to be felt and to be received and to be immersed in. If you have never turned from your sin, then you are outside of the waterfall of God's saving love. The, the love of God has no saving effect on those who will not turn from loving themselves. If you are in love with yourself and in love with the world and in love with the things of the world, you will forfeit the, the effect of the saving love of Christ. And yet for some of you, you have felt so unloved, you've been abused, you've been neglected, and in turn you may have become bitter and angry and hateful and even cursed God who loves you. If you can come to know and believe in God's love, it'll change everything about you. Everything. Abiding in God's love changes the way that we read the Bible. Instead of reading the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts and as a, a book that's full of advice and do this and do that, you'll read the Bible as a love letter to God. And anytime God says don't, he's like, don't hurt yourself. I love you too much for you to experience that pain. It'll change the way that you view prayer. Instead of seeing prayer as a duty, instead of seeing prayer as offering a, a list of chores to God to fix your life, you'll understand that God is inviting you to come into an intimate, personal time with someone who loves you, who wants to listen to you, someone who wants to speak to you. Abiding in God's love changes the way that we view church. 
instead of viewing church as an event that we try to squeeze into our already busy schedule, you'll see church as the beloved bride of Christ that He wants to nourish and cherish as His own. And you'll exchange vows. You'll come into covenant relationship within a church. It'll change the way we view sin. Rather than minimizing sin and rationalizing and excusing and blaming our sin on everybody else, we would see sin as something that hurts the heart of the one who loves us most. We'll love what God loves and hate what God hates and view sin as something that nailed Christ to the cross. We'll view sin as an act of betrayal. And even biblically, the Scripture describes sin as, immor- uh, as, as adultery because of its unfaithfulness toward God. It's turning our back on the one who loves us and loving other things. It changes the way that we view sex and marriage. Abiding in God's love changes the way I view sex, yes. Rather than using sex as a cheap substitute for love, rather than trying to find love in the arms of another human being that really just loves himself or herself, we'll view sex as a sacred reflection of the covenant love relationship between Jesus and His bride shared now between a man and a woman in a covenant love relationship called marriage. Husbands, we would love our wives as Christ loves the church. Notice this in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives. What's the motivation for loving your wives? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. No one ever hated His own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So husbands, if we abided in Christ's love for us, it would change our relationship with our spouses. We would enter into ways to nourish and cherish our wives as an expression, a cascading expression of the way that we've been nourished and cherished by Christ. Abiding in God's love changes the way that we view our enemies. Rather than fighting and criticizing and distancing ourselves from our enemies, rather than trying to defeat our enemies, we would understand our responsibility to love our enemies. That changes the way that we view politics, doesn't it? Rather than fearing those in positions of power and those who sit in political office, we would understand that we are loved by the King of kings. We're invited into His presence. We're invited into His kingdom as citizens. We're not anonymous to Him. We're not somebody He just wants a vote from. He doesn't want our vote. He wants our love. It changes the way that we would view suffering in this world. Rather than grumbling, complaining under the pain and the heartache that we feel living in a world that doesn't know how to love, rather than cursing God for not fixing it, we would be comforted in knowing that God loved us so much He sent a Son into a broken world to suffer and die so that He could sympathize with those of us who suffer and will die. Abiding in God's love changes the way 
that we view risk rather than living exclusively for safety. We would know that we are protected by the one who has unlimited power and eternal love for us. To realize that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I want you to stand right now. If we would abide in God's love, it would literally change our view of death. We would understand death is not something that is the end, but the beginning of eternal life with the one who loves us most. I want you to notice Romans chapter eight, it says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's a rhetorical question. Do you know what a rhetorical question is? The answer is so obvious, it's not even supplied there. But this is what I wanna do. I'm gonna read that question again. I want you at the top of your lungs to shout the answer to that question. Here's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All right, I'm gonna turn that volume up just a little bit on that because that was kind of wimpy response there. I'm gonna read it one more time. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? How about distress? How about persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? How about danger? A sword? Coronavirus. Oh, that was louder than the rest of them. That's amazing. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He continues, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, Republicans or Democrats, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Are you grateful for the love of Christ? Let's sing about that right now.